Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hello and welcome to December's episode of the Secondary Survey. This month we're going to have a look at hypothermia. We're moving into that colder time of year and the risk of hypothermia from exposure is going to be higher. But hypothermia isn't just caused by exposure and we'll talk about some of the other causes of hypothermia as we're going through this month's episode. Maintaining a patient's normal temperature is important outside of hospital and be affected by exposure and other medical reasons. A reduction in the patient's temperature can affect their outcome, especially in patients like trauma patients who are bleeding, burns patients and neonates are especially at risk of complications due to hypothermia. It can also affect our management of patients particular in cardiac arrest, we change how we manage a patient depending on their core body temperature and we look at some of that as well. So before we get into hypothermia, let's look at how and why it's important that we maintain our core body temperature. So our normal core body temperature is normally between 36 to 37 degrees and that temperature is regulated by the body in particular the hypothalamus regulates our body temperature and it regulates our body temperature by either thermogenesis or thermolysis depending on whether the body temperature is too high or too low. If the body temperature is too low the hypothalamus initiates thermogenesis. It happens by limiting skin perfusion, cutaneous vasoconstriction, initiates shivering and it also increases the burning of calories or the metabolism. On the other side, if the body is too warm, the hypothalamus is going to initiate thermolysis or cooling by increasing skin perfusion, so cutaneous vasodilation, increasing the blood supply to the skin, and sweating. So sweating will cause evaporation, which is one of the reasons or one of the ways that we lose heat, and a reduction in calories being burnt. The reason it's important to maintain our temperature is because it's all around homeostasis. Homeostasis is the ability to maintain the body at a a point of equilibrium and all the bodily functions are designed to operate in around that homeostasis. One of the elements of homeostasis is the body temperature. All our body functions generally require a very tight control of temperature between that 36 and 37 degrees. So if we go below 36 or above 37 then different things get affected and we'll look at some of the different things that get affected um, in a little bit. What is hypothermia? Hypothermia is defined as the core body temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. Okay. Um, And generally speaking, we can describe hypothermia as either uh, mild, moderate or severe. So mild uh, hypothermia would be in that 35 degrees to 32 degrees core body temperature range. Moderate, then we start looking at the 32 degrees to 30 and severe is less than 30 degrees temperature. As the core body temperature decreases, different body systems will be affected. A nice table from EM Crit looks at the severity of hypothermia and then looks at how the different body systems are affected at each temperature range or at each severity. So if we have a quick look at the table, looking at the mild severity, neurologically you're going to have an alert patient who's shivering. You might start a bit of ataxia. Okay, and maybe impaired judgment. Look at their cardiac system, your heart rate is going to increase, you you might become a little bit hypertensive, 
Again, that's down to thermogenesis, which causes a vasoconstriction or shunting of blood back to the core, causing an increase in the heart rate and hypertension. Uh, Pulmonary, you will get an increase in breathing rate. In the kidneys, you're going to have a a thing called uh, cold geresis, which is an increase in geresis due to a fluid shift, a fluid shift in the, the body. Moderate, then we're to looking at patient becoming drowsy, shivering may stop, a delirium. They have this phenomenon of paradoxical undressing, so they actually start to believe that they're warm. They start to remove elements of, of protection, dilated pupils. In their cardiac then, the heart swings the other way, so it starts to slow down. You get hypotension due to um, that fluid shift, cholgeresis and possible arrhythmias then starting to come in at that moderate hypothermia. Breathing rate starts to decrease. And then in severe hypothermia, we're looking at unconsciousness with heart rate. Okay, so it's really important that severe hypothermia, initially you might be unconscious with a pulse. Okay, um, fixed and dilated pupils. Okay, reduced, reduced movement, reflexes. You might get some other arrhythmias, starting to look at cardiogenic shock. Pulmonary edema starts to happen in the lungs and the renal function starts to decline. And what the worst case scenario then, you've got that stage of pulselessness, okay, where the patient appears dead, have cardiac arrhythmias, and be in cardiac arrest and apneic. And we'll talk about some of those stages of hypothermia later on when we look at the Swiss staging. What causes hypothermia? So hypothermia, generally speaking, the obvious cause is that we lose more heat than we can generate. So our core body temperature decreases below that 35 degrees. That's that's ultimately the cause of hypothermia. Now, how do we lose heat? We lose heat four different ways. Generally speaking, if anyone remembers their, their physics from school, um, we lose heat through convection, conduction, radiation, and evaporation. And normally speaking, we, we won't become hypothermic as long as our, our thermoregulation ability, so our ability to create heat, is able to deal with the heat loss from those convection, conduction, radiation and evaporation. Once our ability to generate heat, thermogenesis is overcome by the is overcome by the temperature loss, then our core body temperature starts to drop. Now the most obvious cause for uh, hypothermia is going to be related to exposure. So related to exposure uh, in air. So somebody who is out in a cold environment who is not protected from the elements um, through lack of shelter or clothes or injury or somebody who is immersed in a fluid like the water um, also will expose will someone who's immersed in the water will also be at risk of hypothermia in fact people in the water are lose heat from their body at a rate of 25 times quicker than somebody in air if you look at it, another way to put that would be that someone in the water will drop the same temperature in one minute that it would take somebody in air to drop over an hour. So somebody who's wet and cold will be at a, is at a much higher risk of hypothermia than somebody who is dry and cold. So it's really important and we need to think about that when we're thinking about our treatment later on because if somebody is cold and wet then they're going to lose heat at a faster rate than somebody who's dry and cold. So it's important that we, when we're treating them, that we consider the wet when we're treating them and dry them as quickly as we can. 
so other other reasons for hypothermia which are maybe not the more obvious ones and the ones we need to be mindful of especially as we're coming into our uh, colder uh, weather exposure is 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 going to be an element but the things that complicate exposure or maybe make someone more susceptible to hypothermia in an exposed area is for example somebody who's drinking alcohol excessively or sedative use then they may be at higher risk of hypothermia in if in the same conditions as somebody who wasn't using alcohol or sedatives a lot of that then is down to for example someone on alcohol they will have an they'll have an impaired shiver response after drinking alcohol you have a vasodilation so remembering back from our thermogenesis the whole point of that is vasoconstriction. So if we're if we if alcohol causes vasodilation, then we're basically allowing more blood to the surface of the skin, which will cause increased cooling. We also have impaired judgment after alcohol. So neurologically, we may not realize that we're in danger. We may not have the ability to understand that we're at risk of hypothermia. And also, because of the livers used to metabolize alcohol, the glycogen stores in the liver aren't available for the body to use to increase metabolism and to burn calories. Also, trauma. So people who are injured, so bleeding patients are going to lose heat through blood loss. Trauma and the inability to shiver because of injury or the inability to mobilize after an injury means that people often are left lying on a cold surface which heat is conducted away from the body and blood loss well exacerbates that effect because with every milliliter of blood is lost there's a temp there's heat taken away from the body as well hypoglycemia again a lot of the thermoregulation that we do internally um, is down to burning calories so as you burn calories you generate heat if you're hypoglycemic, you don't have that ability to burn calories readily. So your core body temperature might begin to drop. And if you are hypoglycemic, your muscles may not have the required energy stores to commence shivering. So you don't have that ex- that internal ability to raise the temperature either through metabolic means or through the ability to shiver. You also, as you're getting hypoglycemic, you don't, you're unable to think clearly possibly and make decisions to remove yourself from the the place that's making you cold um and another one that is often seen is sepsis so people who are septic especially the elderly can often present with hypothermia so anybody who presents with hypothermia well obvious cause we need to start thinking along the lines of sepsis as in is this an infective cause of hypothermia and that'll be seen in any sepsis guidelines that temperature under 36 thinking about sepsis and you have to remember as well that young and old people are at particular risk of hypothermia okay they have normally less muscle mass and adipose tissue so their insulation wise um, insulation wise is less the muscle mass means their metabolism is less and their ability to shiver is reduced if we if we think back to some of the causes we're, we're the, the obvious causes are exposure but it's really important that we look out for those less obvious causes especially when we're dealing with some of our patients who may be um, alcohol dependent may also be living in shelters larger urban air centers and may spend time sleeping outside um, they're at risk of hypothermia and certainly something we should be monitoring for when we're assessing these casualties you need to think about while their auto level of consciousness may be due to alcohol it may also be due to hypothermia because some of the signs symptoms of hypothermia can be associated with alcohol or hypothermia
we we have our patient who is possibly hypothermic. How are we going to assess them to figure out if they're hypothermic? Um, and ultimately, we're looking at trying to record their temperature, so their core body temperature. So their core, remember, if we think back, hypothermia is core body temperature less than 35. So we need to think about how do we measure their temperature. Now, generally speaking, we're going to use some sort of thermometer. Um, now, thermometers aren't available for every body, and it's not the only way to determine if somebody is hypothermic or not. So how they present can give us an indication of their condition as well. But we should really be looking to confirm their core body temperature as soon as possible. Now, generally speaking, at practitioner level anyway, we're going to be using um, tempanic thermometers, so to check in the temperature of the ear. And that temperature is a fairly close approximation to the core body temperature and when we talk about the core body temperature the I suppose the accepted standard core body temperature would be the temperature of the pulmonary artery um, and the tympanic temperature is reasonably close to what the pulmonary artery temperature would be when they looked when they compared different temperatures okay um, there's a couple of factors that will affect the tympanic temperature um, certain external factors so obviously our ears are quite exposed um, so if they're exposed to the cold then they might have a lower than normal reading and also um, wet ears wet ears can vastly affect the tympanic readings a little bit of caution needs to be taken when we're doing tympanic readings and Again, it goes back to that old saying of treat the patient and not the machine. The other ways of monitoring temperature is to look at directly into the core. So some of the in-hospital methods that they use would be rectal temperatures or um, esophageal temperature. Now, it's not currently in the scope of practice, affect practitioners. Uh, and obviously, it's only appropriate in certain circumstances to carry out those types of uh, temperature readings, uh, mostly along the lines of somebody who's unconscious. And for esophageal temperatures, they really are for people who are uh, intubated and um, in either cardiac arrest or sedated in hospital. Currently, it's tympanic thermometers. And one of the big things that we, the challenges that we would have faced or we face with tympanic thermometers is that generally speaking the normal term thermometers that you get would only read down to 34 degrees so below 34 degrees they give a, a low reading uh, so all we can ascertain from that reading is that the temperature is below 34 degrees that provides a little bit of a challenge when it comes to managing hypothermic patients and certainly managing hypothermic patients who are in cardiac arrest because our management of a cardiac arrest for a hypothermic patient is guided by their core body temperature and we'll go through some of the differences a little later on um, so having a, a having access to a low reading thermometer is, is quite important um, but it's not always available so it'd be really good to uh, maybe get some feedback around um, which services provide low reading thermometers and which don't uh, I know I had to go off and buy my own one uh, and many many of colleagues that I worked with before would have uh, their own low reading thermometers 
But besides temperature, and not everybody's able to measure temperature, either because of the conditions that they're working in. So, so some of our colleagues who are involved in search and rescue, marine search and rescue, are dealing with lots of people who are taken out of the water. And tempanic thermometers are not accurate in those conditions. So having an ability to determine if someone is just cold or if someone's hypothermic is really important by looking at the presentation of the patient. Okay, one of the big things that we're looking for really is that um, AVPU scale. Are they are they responsive or not? Okay, another thing to look at in the in the earlier stages of hypothermia, okay, is a thing called the umbles. So if you think about it, a patient that mumbles, stumbles, fumbles, and grumbles is probably hypothermic. If there if the if the history might indicate that they would be at risk of hypothermia. So someone who is exposed uh, to the cold and you are assessing them and you've got a patient who's mumbling, stumbling, fumbling and grumbling, then it's a reasonable um, assumption to make that they might be hypothermic. Um, another way to look at it is that we have the Swiss stages of hypothermia. So the Swiss stage of hypothermia is, is all around a risk assessing a patient for what level of hypothermia they have uh, against maybe the risk of cardiac arrest secondary to hypothermia. So it's four different stages. Stage one, you'd have an alert patient and that generally we're talking in the mild hypothermic bracket and it's a very low risk of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Stage two then, your response is getting lower so the patient has now only got a verbal response um, and you're in that moving into that moderate to severe hypothermic level, okay. And again, they have a moderate risk of uh, out of hospital cardiac arrest. So we're moving into so once once they are not alert, we're starting to become worried about these hypothermic patients. Stage three then is pain or unresponsive with vital signs. So that pul- that patient who's got a pulse or is breathing, has got vital signs with pain or unresponsive on their output scale and again we're looking at that severe hypothermic level and that patient is at high risk of out of hospital cardiac arrest secondary to hypothermia. Stage four then really is that hypothermic cardiac arrest so it's an unresponsive patient with no apparent vital signs okay uh, and that's the thing about hypothermia. Hypothermia can appear dead and that's why the, where the old saying came from you know, the patient isn't dead until they're warm and dead. And the fear was always around that patient who's profoundly hypothermic, who appears dead, but may have a very low state output. Okay, so so thinking back to the assessment, we're looking at ideally temperature, core body temperature, followed by their presentation. And then one of the biggest things we're looking for presentation really is around their alert level or their response levels. Um remembering having that suspicion for someone who's hypothermic if they've got the umbles that mumbles stumbles fumbles and grumbles if we look then so we've assessed the patient we've determined they're hypothermic and the next thing we need to figure out is what we're going to do with them okay and our ability to manage somebody who's got hypothermia is really important because we can make a difference in the patient's outcome if we're able to manage their hypothermia ultimately the management of their hypothermia is going to depend on their severity we must be careful how and when we rewarm the patient. It must be done slowly and controlled to ensure that the patient avoids any complications secondary to rewarming. Um, certain arrhythmias can happen after rewarming too quickly. You get things like after drop and hypotension secondary to rewarming. 
so it's important that we handle hypothermic patients with respect and that we handle them carefully so ideally hypothermic patients shouldn't walk we should be managing them uh, lying down and if they need to be rescued from the water it's it's important that we manage them remove them horizontally if possible and keep them horizontal as much as possible and the main risks we're worried about there is that when you're in a body of water you have a hydrostatic squeeze on the bits of your body that's immersed in the water and if you're in the water for a very long time body can get used to that hydrostatic squeeze and for want of a better word it becomes a little bit lazy the tone of your the vasal tone of your lower extremities that are immersed in the water becomes less and then when you get removed from the water in a vertical manner you end up with your a lot of your blood volume running into your legs because you don't have the 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 vasal tone to keep your blood pressure in the core so you end up for want of a better word having a vasovagal episode but if you're being removed in a vertical thing vertical stance with a strop you don't have the ability to faint like you would normally okay so you can't reset you can't bring your blood back to your brain to get oxygen to your brain um, so a lot of this, it hap- it's been happening for years. I suppose the most famous incidents of it happening is around the Fastnet race. Um, anybody who, who has dealt with these kind of patients before would have would have heard about the Fastnet race where lots of people were alive in the water and then when they were rescued from the water with helicopters or up the side of ships, by the time they reached the top, they were in cardiac arrest. So keeping someone horizontally, especially if you've got a long distance to bring someone up out of the water it's really important if we can remove them horizontally and then get them horizontal as soon as possible after we've keep them horizontal um, as much as possible after the removal from water after the removal from water ultimately we need to or after the once we have them in a safe place we're going to make sure that we um, firstly insulate them from further heat loss so if we think back to how we lose heat so we have that convection conduction radiation and evaporation so think about convection convection we're going to lose convection convection loses heat through the likes of wind chill so the ability to remove wind chill is really important so get them out of the wind okay so if if you have the ability to move them indoors let's move them indoors um or if you if you're not able to move someone indoors you're waiting for rescue for example then sheltering with bivy bags or some sort of vapor barrier is going to be really important to try and reduce that wind chill effect and will wind chill can increase heat loss by up to 10 10 times okay so if you would if you were standing in a in a body of air and then the air starts to move that can increase the heat loss by 10 times conduction then we talked about conduction so water conducts heat very well so wet clothes lying on wet ground being in a body of water all those things are going to increase um, heat loss through conduction so from our point of view insulating them for further heat loss means removing wet clothes okay getting them covered in dry blankets dry clothes if possible okay trauma patients who are lying on wet ground okay wet cold ground are going to conduct heat away from their bodies um, reasonably quickly so getting them off the ground um, sooner rather than later is, is an important thing to think about another thing to think about then is your radiation so again if we do loads of things and cover the body up so lots lots of times you arrive on scene and someone's covered in coats and blankets and everything and their head is poking out of the top if everything else is covered then your 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 head is going to radiate heat 
Okay, so heat heat loss from the head through radiation is, is a huge thing. So covering the head is really important. Um, so if we can cover up all the body plus the head, um, it's going to reduce that radiation. And again, another reason to remove clo- wet clothes is as they dry, as clothes dry, so we bring them into that um, we bring them into that warm ambulance or we bring them into some sort of warm area and their clothes start to dry, then as it dries, it's going to suck heat away from our body. And it's the exact, exact same principle as sweat. So getting wet clothes off a hypothermic patient is really important uh, and then wrapping them up in warm Uh, dry blankets um, is important again the use of uh, foil blankets and things that are not ideal without other use of blankets or something because you want to build layers so if you know layering up um, insulation so using blankets directly to skin followed by some sort of vapor barrier either through a foil blanket or a bivy bag and then wrapped again in some sort of blanket um, is really going to provide uh, great insulation from further heat loss and and that's ideal when you're when you're operating in environments that can't be warmed up if we're in the back of a warm ambulance then the blankets really are what we're looking for to allow heat to permeate through the blankets um, but we don't really want the foil blanket to, to stop heat getting in. So we need heat to get into the body or heat to get into the patient as much as possible. But when you're in an exposed condition, looking at that um, insulation system of a blanket followed by some sort of vapor barrier, so bivy bag, foil blanket, something like that, uh, and then another blanket on top of it to provide that extra insulation uh, is really going to help. So... Um, Pre-hospital services around the world use different systems, but generally speaking, it's all around the same stuff of a layer of insulation followed by some sort of vapor barrier and maybe another layer of insulation over that. Trying to build up those layers of of air pockets that can heat up. Uh, And that's what we're really looking for at the milder stages of hypothermia, trying to get the body to reheat itself. As we move into that moderate hypothermia stages, then we need to think about adding heat okay so thinking about that so mild patient is alert warm blankets warm environment and then drinking warm fluids something to eat a bit of movement all those kind of things can can help the patient warm up gradually as we move into that moderate to severe level so at moderate level we're looking at in introducing that active rewarming external active rewarming of the core so heat packs the axilla and groin and um, again this is adding on top of you know your warm blankets and warm environment okay at the moderate level we wouldn't be giving anything to to eat or drink because we worry about their airway compromise but thinking about um heat packs is a little groin and then the consideration of warm fluids okay so warm fluids is more likely appropriate if the patient is hypotensive which they may be because of fluid shift and that cold geresis that we were mentioned earlier but the ability of fluids to rewarm the body is it's a little bit questionable as in if you think about the physics behind it you're adding 40 degree water fluids to of inaliquots of 250 mils to 500 mils over a half an hour and you're adding that to a body of fluid your blood of around let's say on average 5,000 mils of blood 
that's around that has a temperature of anywhere between 30 to 35 degrees so you're only talking about a 10 or 5 degree difference in temperature in a relatively small amount of fluid and you're and and you're trying to that isn't going to raise the temperature uh, of the of the greater fluid in any meaningful way what it will do though is it won't reduce the temperature so it's important if we are giving fluids that those fluids are warmed ideally they should be passing through a fluid warmer but again the that equipment doesn't really exist outside of hospitals so again looking at using warmed fluids out of a fluid warmer um, into uh, to infuse if we need to give fluids so considering fluids is definitely a, a thing but whether uh, the utility to of the fluids to warm someone up is probably yes less useful than the usefulness of fluids to um, add to the hemodynamics. Um, what as we are rewarming people, we need to monitor them closely. So they need to be on um, cardiac monitoring and need constant blood pressure monitoring because we're looking for any hemodynamic instability or and we're also watching out for the possibility of after drop so where the core temperature actually decreases as we're warming them up okay um, and it's something that we must watch out for as we move into that severe hypothermic patient the utility of external rewarming in severe hypothermia is, is questionable um, it's not that it's going to cause any harm but its ability to rewarm somebody who's profoundly hypothermic is probably not as useful as the systems they have in hospital. So when they go into hospital, someone who's severely hypothermic is going to get various means of rewarming depending on, on the severity of their hypothermia and the equipment available to the hospital. So obviously one of the main ways that they can rewarm someone is using warmed humidified oxygen. So if you think about our lungs, our lungs have a massive surface area and we lose heat through our lungs as we breathe. So we can also use that fact to add heat. So if we're if we're using warmed humidified oxygen, we can add heat to the core of the body. Okay, so that's a less invasive way to heat the body up. Um, they've got the ability to use bear huggers, um, so hot air blown in a blanket over, over a, a patient. Um, and then for the more severe types of hypothermia, they can use invasive things like peritoneal lavage of warm fluids. And where available, you could even go into um, using ECMO. Okay, so where you're going to basically bypass and warm the, the blood um, externally and reintroduce it back to the body. And slowly bring up the core temperature using, using ECMO. So ultimately, from the management point of view, we're looking at insulating further heat loss so removing any wet clothing into a warm environment if possible and then depending on um, their severity we're going to add in things like um, for the mild hypothermia that drinking warm fluids and for moderate we're looking at that external rewarming of, of heat packs the and groin and maybe if 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 required thinking about fluids um, and then for that severe it's really um something that we're looking to get into hospital to do um and and let the our colleagues in hospital um implement some of the the more invasive rewarming procedures and it's really important that we do this rewarming in a controlled fashion so you're only looking at maybe half a degree an hour rewarming of the core to minimize those complications of of um rewarming 
I suppose just before we finish up on hypothermia, we need to think about some of the, the special considerations around hypothermia. We need to think about uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, if it's secondary to hypothermia or somebody is hypothermic after cardiac arrest, um, we need to change our management depending on their core temperature. So somebody who's moderately hypothermic, we the first thing we're going to do is we're going to double the interval of medications administered and um, we're going to n- not actively warm the patient over 32 degrees. As we move into that severe, so under 30 degrees core body temperature, we're thinking about limiting the number of shocks um, to three for anybody in VF. And for anybody who's got a bradycardia, we don't want to be introducing um, any atropine unless their temperature, core body temperature is above 34 degrees. Okay. Another just quick mention about trauma. Um, in trauma, we're worried really about hypothermia. They're at high risk of hypothermia and they're also um, at risk. Hypothermia will increase their risk of uh, bleeding and acidosis. So there's this thing called the triad of death. So as patients, beca- as patients bleed, they become hypothermic. And as patients become hypothermic, they bleed more. And as they bleed more, they become acidotic, which causes them to bleed more and become hypothermic. And it's, it's a constant spiral of, of doom. So from our point of view, that management is all around stopping the bleeding, keeping them warm, getting them to, to hospital um, to fix the problem if, if, if we can, uh, and avoiding acidosis if at all possible. Another group of patients we have to be worried about is the ones that are burnt. Burn patients are at high risk of hypothermia because the skin plays such an important part in thermoregulation that when the skin is damaged through burning, it increases the risk of hypothermia. With the treatment for burns being cooling of a burn and exposure of the area that's burnt, it can increase the risk of hypothermia. And it's really important that we watch out for hypothermia because hypothermia has been shown to increase mortality of serious burns patients. If you think about burns, it's all about cooling the burn but warming the patient. So keeping the patient warm, avoiding hypothermia, and but cooling the burn, covering it as soon as uh, as soon as you can, and transporting to hospital. If you have to give fluids for a burn, we should be thinking about warmed fluids for burns. One of the last patient groups I'm going to talk about is the neonates. Neonates are particularly at risk of hypothermia. They have a large surface area relative to their size and they have limited fat stores to act as insulation and hypothermia increased mortality of neonates so it's really important if we're dealing with neonates especially newborn pre-hospital labor that the baby is kept as warm as possible the ambulance should be uncomfortably hot and we're remembering to put hats on skin skin contact where possible and really making sure that we're being mindful of the temperature of the newborn. So that brings us to the end of December's episode on hypothermia. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. Please like and subscribe to our social media and share the podcast among your colleagues. I hope that you'll get to enjoy some of the Christmas with your family and friends. And for those working, take care, mind yourselves, and see you in 2023. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should
should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.